You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Uh, turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, we want you to have God's Word open in front of you. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible handy, there is one in the pew there near you. Um, take it, open it up. And uh, if you don't have a Bible easily accessible, you don't have a Bible at home that you can read easily, um, take this one. It's our gift to you. We want you to have it. Um, we, are, we are thrilled to have to restock those frequently. Um, that's our gift to you. Um, you can tell a lot about a person um, by the clothes that they wear. Clothing expresses our personality, our identity in some ways, um, social, cultural positions, political ideologies, um, young or old, rich, poor, clergy, gangster, um, prisoner, athlete, soldier, professor. Um, you can identify them by the, the clothes that they wear. Clothing um, says something about who we are, where we're from, what we value, the, the culture that we belong to. As we work our way through the book of Colossians, um, it's a little bit subtle, understated, but Paul's using this, this metaphor of clothing. And, uh, and he's, he's, he's talking in, in chapter 3 about this new life that we have in Christ. Um, once dead in our trespasses and sins, um, we have been saved by grace. Now we have this new life in Christ. Um, we've been transferred, Paul says, out of the, the kingdom of darkness to which we once belonged and into uh, the kingdom of his light. This new life requires some new clothing. Just imagine if uh, a, a poor orphan was rescued and adopted out of the, the deepest slums of India and, and adopted into the home of a, a rich business tycoon in New York City. Um, there would be a radical change in clothing, in attire. And so in, in much the same way, in fact, even far more so, this transition, this transformation out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light um, requires some transformation, some changes. Of course, Paul is speaking metaphorically here. The change from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is not just this kind of physical exterior change. It's so much more than that. And so this, this new clothing uh, needs to be far more than just external clothing. It's much deeper than that. Um, it's a change that, that, that changes what defines us. Changes what people see or ought to see as they, as they look at us. So verses 5 to 11 um, in, in chapter 3, Paul says to, to put to death then sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness. Verse 8 um, then uses the language of clothing, take it off, put them away, like an old pair of clothes, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. The, these are the things that used to define us. That was the clothing of the old self. And verse 12 then we're going to pick up this morning, begins with the words, put on then. 
He's saying, here's your new clothing. Here's your new attire to go along with your new identity. This is what people ought to see when they meet you. So let's take a look at this new clothing. Um, Colossians 3, starting in verse 12. Uh, And so just, again, chapter 3, verse 1 begins with, If then you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. 11 to 15 um, talks about putting off the old clothes, the old life. Uh, And then uh, 12 to 14 says this. Sorry, 5 to 11. That's what's bugging me. I said 11 to 15. Um, 12 to 11, or 12 to 14. We'll get it right. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true and trustworthy. Thank you that it is sufficient for life and godliness. So God, we come to you this morning uh, hungry for your truth. Lord, I have nothing of value to say this morning but to echo what you have said. So Lord, I pray that my words would be faithful to your word this morning. God, if there's anything that I have uh, thought or planned or prepared that is not uh, faithful to your word, that is not of you, God, I just ask that those words would fall to the ground. They would not be heard. But Lord, as your word goes forth, would you be at work in our hearts? God, by your spirit, would you open our eyes? Would you challenge us? Would you confront us where we need it? Would you encourage and strengthen and build us up where we need it? God, would you change us this morning? Uh, By your word, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is what it looks like to live this new life in Christ. This is the, the cultural clothing, the defining marks of a citizen of the kingdom of light. And the first thing Paul does uh, in verse 12 uh, is you'll notice he, he reaffirms our new identity. That's, that's the first point there. Um, live in your new identity. Live in your new identity. Notice he, he begins the command, put on then, and, and then he interrupts himself, and he, he interjects that crucial phrase, um, and he gives it as the the grounds of his command. This is the foundation of why we ought to do what he's telling us to do. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's significant. You can only live out this new life if if you first have the new life. That seems pretty obvious if we stop and look at it. This is This is not the the spiritual equivalent of of cultural appropriation, to use a modern buzzword. Um, No, he's saying, um, don't don't just pretend, don't just put this on as a costume, but rather recognize who we truly are and live out of that identity. So before we move forward, we have to clarify who exactly is Paul writing to here. We don't want to get this out of order. Looking back again at verse 1, he informs us he's writing to those who have been raised with Christ. 
This identity that we're talking about does not describe all of humanity. This is not an everybody's in kind of a thing. And in fact, let's even be more clear. This does not define every person who just happens to come to church on a Sunday morning. It is entirely possible, I would say even highly likely, that there are some, if not many, here this morning to whom this does not apply. Because you don't have the new life in Christ. You've not been raised with Christ. And so I, I, don't, I don't want to just jump into this and, and confuse you. Um, this is for those who have been saved, for those who have been brought from death to life. And, and, and what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, it's someone who has been so transformed by God's grace and have therefore admitted to themselves and to God that they are sinners who deserve his wrath and have seen and, and, and trusted in Jesus and what he's done on the cross for, for paying the penalty for my sin that I deserved. And so it's, it's trusting in him and it's, and it's treasuring him as we sung as our, as our only hope in life and death. That's who Paul's writing to here. And so if that's not you, um, you, you don't need to start by trying to put on these clothes that don't fit, that don't make any sense. You need to start by running to Christ. You need to start by coming to terms with your sinfulness before him and understanding the grace that he offers to those who come in repentance. That's where you begin. But for those this morning who have this new life, then we need to understand what that means of you. We can only live out this new life first if we have it, but then secondly, so far as we understand it. This is your identity, and Paul says that you are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let's just break that down a little bit. If you're a Christian, that means you are one of God's chosen ones. And, and I don't think in some generic sense. Let me just get a little bit technical. Look at verse 12. Put on, that's in the, the second person plural. He's talking to a group of believers and he's speaking to each of them individually together. Put on these things. Why? Well, he continues in that second person plural because each of you are God's chosen ones. Believer, you are specifically, personally chosen by God. This is our identity. This is foundational to this, this clothing then that we're to put on, this life that we're to live. That you are chosen by God. You are loved by God, saved by God, and not because of anything in you. If, if you're a Christian this morning, uh, it's not because you were a little bit smarter than everyone else, just a little bit more holy than everyone else. You were the one who's just a, a little more spiritually sensitive or had just a little bit more faith. No, you're saved because God chose you and showed his grace to you. Romans 3, 10 and 11, there is no one righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. There is no such thing as a sinner in whose sin who says, oh, I need to seek after God. It doesn't happen. Ephesians 2 opens saying that we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once lived. That was our life. That was our reality. And then verses 4 and 5 just, just break into this shockingly. But God, being rich in mercy, 
Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. Did you notice where you fit in there? The role that you played? Did you notice what you did there? Not much. Um, But God. Why? Because of me? No, but because of his love. Because of his mercy. This radical change doesn't come about because of a but I, but because of a but God. It's his grace, and and he explicitly says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, make sure we realize that God acted first. He did this. He didn't wait for you to turn to him. He didn't somehow kind of this reverse thing of look down the court of history and see who would choose him, and then he chose them. I don't even know what that would mean. No. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, he chose us. In him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So again, notice the the timing that he emphasizes. Why does he say before the foundation of the world? He's making a point. Before you were even born, before the world was even created, this happened. He chose you as an act of love, according to the purpose of his will. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Again, he's pointing back, God did this before you were even created, before Adam and Eve were even created. God chose you to be called to a holy calling and, and not because of anything in you, but according to his own purpose, according to his own grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this was not your own doing, it's the gift of God, so that no one, sorry, not as a result of work, so that no one can boast. I'm just glad I had the faith to be saved. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Even that was a gift from God. No one can brag, not even a little bit. What a simultaneously humbling and honoring truth. Any pride that I come into this with, and I'll admit, I came in with a lot. I came in with a, you're welcome, God. You're lucky I'm on your team. Aren't you glad that I decided to be a Christian, God? He just had to crush that in me, and he graciously did. There's no boasting. As Jonathan Edwards would say, the only thing I contributed to my salvation is the sin that made it possible and made it necessary. I brought nothing. He has done it all. So crushingly humbling. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, Paul just kind of revels in this. Oh, I'm saved. Look at, look at me. Look how great I must be. Paul says, well, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. That's all we have. If we're going to brag about it, we just have to brag about what God did to a a sinner who was far from him. And yet, what an honor. What a place of confidence. What a place of of hope and and security and peace. He chose me. 
Not because of something I did that, that, that I could maybe one day change. Not because I was, you know, some good person. No. He chose me out of the purpose of his own grace. He put his love upon me. I was no closer to to being a saint, no further from being a sinner. Um, There's not some line that I have to try to maintain and uphold in order to to keep it. He he did it, and he'll continue. That's the core to my identity is this truth that I'm one of his, his chosen ones. And then Paul fills that out. What does that mean? Uh, a couple more descriptive words there. What does it mean to be chosen by God? Firstly, it means to be holy, to be set apart. Think of grandma's fine china. They are dishes that are, that are set apart for a special use. We, we, don't, we don't use those on the, you know, the hot dog and macaroni nights. Um, we use that for Thanksgiving dinner, for Christmas dinner. They're, they're, they're treasured and, and set aside for, for something special. We saw already Ephesians 1.4, uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Made new, washed clean, set apart by God. 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling. To be chosen and called is to be set apart. We're to be holy. We are, we are precious to the Lord and Then again, in in verse 12, right alongside that, we are holy and we are beloved. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. To be chosen is to be loved. Romans 1, 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's a regular refrain throughout Ephesians 1. In love, he predestined us to be holy and blameless in his sight because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. To be chosen by God is to be set apart for God and to be loved by God. And all of that by grace and grace alone. This this is our identity. This is the radical transformation. I used to live as a sinner my identity was selfishness. My identity was pride. My identity was, was independent and self-indulgent and self-reliant and servant of me. And, and my identity was an object of the wrath of God. Now my identity is chosen, set apart, beloved by God. That, that is the, a, a radical transformation in, in who I am. If you don't understand what it means to be made alive in Christ, if you don't understand what this new life is, then then how can you live it out? And conversely, the deeper that reality strikes us, the more embedded those truths are in our hearts, the more we, we not only know them and understand them, but feel the weight of them, the more they'll produce those proper effects, the more they change the way that we live. So living this new life first requires living in this new identity. Secondly, then, it's living out the new reality. This is who I am, and now I need to, now I need to live it out, put it into action. If this is true, if we are, are chosen and set apart and loved by God, freely by his grace, then, then how ought we to act towards one another? How do we live in that truth? Well, let's continue to look at verse 12 and into verse 13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Here's that new clothing. Um, Let's just kind of walk through this list for a minute. Uh, Compassionate hearts. Over in Ephesians, the same word is translated as as tender hearts. It's It's a gentleness. It could be translated mercy or sympathy. It's it's understanding and and caring toward one another. After compassion comes kindness. This is a fairly generic word. It just means goodness. It's it's treating others well. It's it's doing to others what you would have them do unto you. Next uh, come humility and meekness. And those kind of come together in a few ways. Um, Humility is is not thinking of myself higher than I am, as more important than I am, not elevating self, but rather looking to the needs of others, considering others higher than myself. Meekness, then. um, Today, it's often defined as power under control. Maybe you've heard that. I just think that's so unhelpful. Uh, I think that's a lousy definition of meekness. Um, We get so defensive. Um, We are so scared as North Americans to be called weak that even in the definition of meekness, we want to bring in the power. And so we say, no, no, meekness isn't isn't weakness. It's power under control. And the problem is we we get that power part and we kind of forget the under control part. Um, This is tough. This one rubs us the wrong way as North Americans. And we just got to own that. True meekness is is not weakness, but it does not imply power. That's not part of its definition. Commentator William Hendrickson defines meekness this way, um, the willingness rather to suffer injury than afflict it. I, I would rather be hurt by you than hurt you. I would I would be willing to be taken advantage of uh, if, if that would be to your benefit be treated unfairly, to suffer loss for the sake of others. That's uncomfortable. We don't like that. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. There's an intentional contrast there that Jesus is playing with. The meek are those who have let go of the earth. The meek are those who have allowed earthly things to be taken away from them, even unfairly, without struggle, without fight. They're docile. They're easygoing. They're not argumentative. They're not self-protective. They're they're meek. And that's a virtue in the eyes of the Lord. The last on the list is patience. Um, The Greek word is makrothumia. Um, Makro means long. Um, Thumia is your passion, the fire in your belly. It's the the willingness to fight. And, And so if you are makrothumia, that that willingness to fight is a long ways off. It's a ways away. Uh, A good translation, I think, is long-suffering. So if my kids are are screaming and and yelling and playing loudly or complaining or whatever it is, and I'm I'm patient, I'm going to suffer for a long time before I correct them. Uh, It's going to be a challenge. I will continue uh, for a longer period. Even if someone is aggravating me, sinning against me, and I'm patient toward them, means I'm not losing my temper. It means I'm not vengeful or angry, um, resenting of them, uh, but able to endure it. And, and not just grit my teeth through it, but, but with peace, patience. Then in, in verse 13, uh, 
Paul shifts from these kind of abstract virtues to a little more concrete action. Here's what this looks like on the street. Um, Bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Let's just start with the underlying assumption here. Paul assumes that you will need to bear with one another and forgive one another. And the the if there uh, is really more like a when. Um, If anyone has a grievance. No, when anyone has a grievance against another, it's going to happen. If you're going to attend church here, just kind of full disclosure, um, you need to know um, that you're going to be offended. You're going to be sinned against at some point. It's going to happen. You're going to get poked by someone else's weakness and or sin. And if you're going to leave a church every time that happens, you're going to soon run out of churches. That's not the way the Lord designed it to be. That's part of the beauty of fellowship is it's sanctifying, as it transforms us, as we see our sin made evident, as we learn to deal with the sins of others. We're sinners. That's why we're here, I hope, that we gather as sinners who are self-aware of that fact and know that we need a Savior. And we're striving, we're seeking to to live in holiness, to live and love one another, to seek the Lord. Um, But friends, this just is not heaven yet. We're not there. So eventually you're going to be sinned against. It's going to happen. The question is, how will you respond? What will you do? You have a choice. We can get self-protective and and defensive and and up in arms and and pretending like I would never have done something so terrible as that. And you can just destroy that relationship. Or Paul gives us this kind of two-stepped approach. The first step is bearing with one another. To bear with one another means to just overlook it. Those faults, those weaknesses, those failures, the, the little things, let it go. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Yep, that hurt. Whatever. It's okay. 1 Peter 4.8, love covers a multitude of sins. Listen, we're, we're weak people. We make mistakes. We forget things. We forget things that are important to other people. We say things poorly or we say things that should never have been said. We have bad days and we show up to church grumpy and out of sorts. Sometimes that mask slips off a little bit, right? We're just not kind to one another as we always should be. There will be all kinds of these little poking obnoxious jabs as we hustle and bustle them out through here. But our default position should be to to bear with one another. Just let those small things go. Roll it off like water off a duck's back. Don't let them bother you. Don't let them accumulate. Don't don't keep a checklist. That's the 16th time that he stepped on my toe. Who cares? Let it go. It's so much work to try to hold on to those things, to try to keep a tally of who's wronged you with what offensive. Just, Just let it go. Give room for mistakes and weakness just overlook them bearing with one another then his second step is a little more serious right if anyone has a complaint against another that word complaint is now now there's a grievance now there's guilt and 
blame. There's something has happened a little more significant. There's sin involved for sure. Now what? Well, Matthew 18 gives us some pretty clear guidelines on how to call a brother or sister to repentance, how to to go about reconciliation and restoring that relationship. Um, But the bottom line is, the simple answer is, forgive. We're called to forgive. Forgive them, but they hurt me. Yeah. But, But they did it on purpose. Yeah, maybe. But it was sin. Yeah, forgive them. Take a clear look at the the debt that they owe you for having harmed you, the mental, emotional damages and stress, maybe even a financial cost, and forgive it. Release them of it. No bitterness, no lingering anger or hatred, just let it go. It's terrifying, isn't it? That's That's my power, that's my control. Now, to be fair, reconciliation, restoring that relationship, rebuilding the trust and and moving forward, um, that takes a little more work. That's where Matthew 18 comes in, right? That's going to require repentance from the other person. That's going to take some time to to rebuild. Uh, and, And in some cases, it may never be the same. But forgiveness, your act of not holding it against them, letting go of bitterness, anger, malice, your willingness to engage in an appropriate process of reconciliation, that's not optional. That's commanded of us. Here Paul returns to that new identity as the foundation for this as well. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Because we've been forgiven of far, far more than we will ever be asked to forgive. Your debt of sin against the the perfect, holy God was infinite. It was more than you could pay in an eternity in hell. And you rightly owed that to him and he would have been holy and just to demand it paid in full. And he didn't. He forgave. And and that doesn't mean he just kind of made it go away or pretend like it didn't happen. No, he came down, took on human flesh and the person of Jesus Christ, and on the cross he bore the wrath of God that we deserved in our place. He paid the debt. And so we are to also forgive. To absorb the debt. That's what forgiveness is. I'll take the cost. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to try to to make you suffer to pay me back for my suffering. I'll just take it. I'll forgive. Like the man in in Jesus' parable, having been forgiven an insurmountable debt that's, that's represented by millions upon millions of dollars by the holy God himself, um, will we now um, have our brother thrown into prison and beaten because he can't pay us back a hundred and fifty bucks? Jesus goes so far, Matthew 6, uh, verses 14 and 15, to say, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's terrifying. If you cannot forgive, you will not be forgiven. 
Now, I don't think that means that unforgiveness is the unforgivable sin. But rather, if your life is marked by unforgiveness, if that's what what characterizes you, that's evidence that you don't understand the grace of God. That you have not understood your own sin against him and his offer of grace towards you. If you truly understood that, you would forgive. And if you can't forgive it, it draws into question your ever having experienced forgiveness yourself and what forgiveness you will find in the final judgment. Consider this. Every sin, every sin against us, will be dealt with. In in one of two ways, it will be dealt with. Either that person will pay the full penalty for that sin in hell, or Jesus has paid the price for that sin in his death on the cross. Either way, if God has dealt with that sin in full, what position do I have to demand payment again? God has forgiven us so freely, so completely, so generously. We ought ought to treat others the same way. And of course, Paul points back to the Lord here specifically saying, you, you ought to forgive as the Lord forgave you. That, that forgiveness that we've been given ought to flow out to others. But I think it's more than just forgiveness. I think here he's intentionally pointing us back that all of these virtues flow out of what we've already been given in Christ. All of these things that we are to put on are things that we have experienced first and most fully from God toward us. Just kind of walk back through that list again. We are, we're called to compassion Matthew 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. God had compassion on us first. We're called to kindness. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. We're called to Humility and, and meekness. Philippians 2, 6-8 says this of Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. That's meekness. We're called to patience. Psalm 103, 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Believer, the only reason you have new life in Christ, the only reason any of us can say, I am God's chosen, holy, and beloved, is because of his immeasurable compassion and kindness, humility and meekness and patience toward us. Bearing with us in our weakness and forgiving us of an amazing price. Live in that identity and and live out that reality. Put on those new clothes. You are no longer a slave in the kingdom of darkness, but a son and a prince in the kingdom of light. So, So act like it. Think deeply about the the Lord's goodness. Meditate on that. Chew on that. 
Ask yourself, what does this mean of me? And think about, how do I grow in this? Read through this list. What are the things that I need to be consciously, intentionally putting on? Is there anyone that I need to be forgiving? Am I withholding forgiveness? Live in this new identity. Live out this new reality. And then finally, verse 14, above all, love. Above all, love. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is the crown jewel of these virtues. It's the supreme, most decisive behavior and disposition Love binds together compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience and forgiveness. And if you dig down beneath each of those, what you'll find is love. Again, the supreme place of love is seen in God's heart and God's actions toward us. We have been loved. 1 John 4, 8 and 9. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. That's love. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And of course, John three sixteen, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If love is supreme in the Lord's heart and his actions toward us, then it, then it ought also to be supreme in, in our actions towards one another. 1 John 4, 11 and 12 makes this connection. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is per- perfected in us. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's it, church. That's who we are to be. That is the the ultimate expression of of the new life in Christ is love. Love one another. Now we're tempted to romanticize that. Make it just beautiful and flowery and rose colored glasses, but love is hard. Love takes work. Love requires sacrifice. Love is often painful. Love means humility and meekness and forgiveness. These virtues are not easy things to do. But love one another. Love for one another in a way that that overlooks the failings of others. A way that is ready to, to forgive even when someone has hurt you. Love that is patient and kind. That's what brings us together. And as those who have been loved, even when we were unlovable, we ought to be so eager to love. And church, I just, I, I've got to say, I, I can preach this with rejoicing. Because I see this happening here. I see this happening amongst us. It's, it's glorious. It's visible every Sunday morning and, and, and beyond. Sometimes in very simple ways. Um, As a pastor, I get to hear a lot of the little stories that maybe you don't. I get to hear time and time again that people 
came and visited and felt loved. They felt welcomed. They felt cared for. People asked my name and then they remembered my name. That's awesome. That's, that's so encouraging to hear. Well done. But let's keep going. Let's grow in this all the more. Continue to strive for that. When you come here Sunday morning, I'm not coming to receive. Don't, don't come as a, as a spectator, as a consumer to church, but to serve, to love others. And, and that is going to take sacrifice. Sacrifice your own comfort. Maybe give up chatting with those friends that you wanted to catch up with. Chat with them later. Take some time to go meet someone new. To see someone sitting off by themselves and make them feel welcomed and at home. Give up on small talk and empty chatter and, and really get to know people, how they're doing and how you can pray for them. We're to be a people defined by having been loved by God and so eager to love others. And that love shows up also in more difficult ways and I'm thankful for that as well. Two weeks ago, um, we ended uh, the service on this glorious resounding note of verse 11 here in Christ. There is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That's what we're about. We're about Jesus Christ. That's the, 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 the clarion call of our church is the gospel of Christ. And yet there's great diversity in our church. We are not all alike we don't all agree on any number of secondary issues. And yet we're to be united. He is what we're to be about. And yet the reality is most of those differences don't just evaporate. They don't just disappear into thin air. We're united around Christ. And then we have to figure out how to get along, how to live together, how to actually make this happen in real life. That's what verses 12 to 14 are about. We're united in Christ. We're brought together in this new life. Now, how do, we, how do we do that? Well, we do that because in Christ we learn compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. In Christ we're called to bear with one another and forgive one another and to love one another. It's not always easy. It often means deliberate sacrifice, conscious decisions to overlook and forgive sin. To put others before ourselves, to prefer rather to be harmed than to harm another. And we've had our bumps and bruises along the road for sure. We're a bruised, broken bride in many ways. And yet here we are, together. I can tell numerous stories of people that I have sinned against and who have forgiven me. And our relationship is so much stronger because of it. I've heard story just this last week of anger that sparked between two brothers was followed up by repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation within the day. That's what's got to happen. That's what it's like. That's what we're after. Let me say again, let's not be content with that. Let's strive all the more, church. How many churches have been torn apart in the last two years uh, over COVID? A lot. A lot. The bride of Christ divided over masks and vaccines and a virus. That's catastrophe. Listen, we're going to disagree on things, church. We have people in our fellowship from 
radically varying perspectives. Different opinions, different convictions, both seeking to honor the Lord and going about it very different ways. That's okay. That's okay. We need to be okay with that. The only question is, will we remain bound together by love? Will we bear with one another in that? Will we forgive one another when tensions run high? Will we be humble toward one another? Assuming the best of one another and continue in love. And again, I rejoice. Church, look, this, there are more people here today than when this whole thing started. That's God's grace working out in us in love. That's fantastic. But let's not take that for granted. Let's continue to strive in this, to grow in this. As elders, our, our hope uh, is that Sunday morning, this, this gathering um, is, is to be a space where, where people of various convictions can come together and feel welcomed and loved regardless of your convictions. Okay, and so we realize that's difficult. Anyone else see how that's going to be humanly impossible? Like, if we're looking at this from a worldly perspective, we just need to do two, maybe three churches. Meet separately, break it up. Right? Otherwise, we're just going to be destroying one another. We're not into that. That's not the route we're going to go. Not going to happen. We want to love one another. We want to, we want to make this space, again, a place where we can come together as, as various convictions and people are able to come and feel comfortable and feel loved. And so I realize um, that this is going to be a sacrifice. This is going to be a sacrifice for everybody. Nobody's going to be fully comfortable in the space that we create. Maybe there's like two people who are like right there. This is exactly my spot. Good. I'm, I'm glad you're happy. Um, there are some who would prefer by their convictions that everyone here would be wearing masks all the time. And, and we're not going to do that. We're not going to require that of everybody. There are some um, who would like to see all of this absolutely over and done with, never to be spoken out about again, um, carry on as if it doesn't exist or because it doesn't exist, um, we're not going to do that either. We're going to continue as we did this morning to seat people generally spaced out. If you want to sit with someone, try to come with them or let the ushers know we want to accommodate that, but, but we're going to continue to use the space we have as best we can. And so I know this isn't ideal. I know that it rubs everybody somewhere, and we're just saying, we need to love one another. We need to be bearing with one another, forgiving one another, um, prioritizing our love and our unity together far above any of these other things. And, and let's just guard our hearts in this church. Take, take time this week. Read through this passage. Lord, what do I need to put on? What, what in this list do I need to, to grow in? Is there someone that I need to forgive? Am I withholding that? How can I grow in love? And, and church, I'm so confident as we continue to, to seek the Lord in this, as we live in this identity as God's chosen, holy, beloved people, as we live out this reality of what he has called us to be, that love will continue to reign uh, and will increase among us and that in that Christ is glorified. Would you pray with me? Father, 
thank you. Thank you for all you have accomplished, even in the last year and a half. You have stretched us, Lord. You have, you have brought challenges and trials. And God, you have been gracious to sustain us. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to, to bear with one another in love. Help us to be so quick to forgive one another that in this place gathered together and as we scatter, Lord, that we would be a people just evidently marked by compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And God, we just plead with you again for unity in this place. Lord, that, that we would be able to say it is Christ that unites us. We are about his glorious gospel. And Lord, that, that the world would look in in, in confusion and wondering how this strange ragtag group of people so different in so many ways and yet so united in Christ. And Lord, that you would get the glory. We pray in Jesus' name.